Today, uh, we're going to be talking, I think I've already mentioned it, uh, but today we're starting a series just for the month of October called Reformation Matters. Um, and again, you'd think I'd probably like that phrase, matters, church matters, Reformation matters, and I'm calling it Pursuing a Modern Reformation. Okay, so the Reformation, if you're not aware, is celebrated in the month of October, and um, I would argue I learned very, very little growing up about the Reformation, and that's very sad. It's to my own detriment, I think, that I learned very, very little about the Reformation. So I'm going to spend, uh, I'm hoping every year I'm here during the month of October, I'm going to take the month of October and, and remind us of the heritage that we have, that, that the reason we're here and the reason we do what we do is not just in a vacuum. We're not just people that were just plopped down here in Kaiser, and we do life this way. We, we, are, we are shaped by a tradition in that way. So the Reformation is a very, very pivotal time in history, and we're going to be studying it, but we're also going to be looking at it through the eyes of Scripture. Uh, so our text today is 2 Timothy. That's what we're going to be looking at. 2 Timothy 3, 10 through 16. That's what I want us to focus in on today. 2 Timothy 3, 10 through 16. And this is, this is what God's Word says. You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured, yet for, for, from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and impostors go on, will go on from bad to worst, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned, having firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus." All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Let's pray. Lord, the, Your Word is our firm foundation as our church as us as individuals, Lord, we don't have anywhere else to run to. There is nowhere else to go. Lord, your word, you have spoken. You are the God who is there, and you are not silent. You have spoken. Help us even today to pay heed to your word. Give us a confidence, I pray, in your word that is fresh and anew, Give us a, a love and a desire to read, to be in your word, to chew on, to delight in your word. Father, what I'm asking for, we can't do. Unless you do it through your word, by your spirit, for your glory, we can't do it. So Lord, we ask that you would do that in us. Help us, we pray. God, we ask this now in Jesus' name. Amen. So all throughout the month of October, as I've said, we celebrate the Reformation. 
Uh, one of the main reasons is October 31st is celebrated, as most people would know it as Halloween. It's not the reason we celebrate Halloween, by the way, but it just happened to be on October 31st that Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses to the door at Wittenberg, okay? And those 95 theses within it, which Luther called popish, he said they weren't even that great, actually, basically was challenging the authority of Rome. And that was something that in the day, there wasn't the Baptist church, the Presbyterian church, the Methodist church. There was one holy Catholic Roman, Roman Catholic church. And when Luther went to the door at Wittenberg and he nailed the 95 Theses, it was like, it was like, um, I'm trying to think, it would be like a gunshot heard around the world. It was so significant that later, four years later, he would stand before a council and say, I have no other authority to stand on. Scripture and Scripture alone. And the council condemned him a heretic and said, you're, you're to be put to death. Thankfully, Luther was smuggled away into a castle where he spent several years. And you know what he started to do for the German people? You know that German people, and we don't ever think about this, but at the time, they didn't have, they didn't have an English Bible. If you didn't speak Latin, you didn't read the Bible. But you know what he started doing? He started translating the New Testament. I love what Matthew Barrett, he goes on to say, he says, so influential was Luther's work that some have estimated by the time of his death, 20 years later, 1546, more than half a million copies of the Bible were in the hands of the people. Can you imagine for a second? Rather than coming here every week and understanding what I'm saying, could you imagine me standing up here and, I don't speak Latin, but if I did, they didn't even speak Latin. They didn't even know what they were saying. But now, the German people had Bibles in their own language. And even the song we sang this morning, written by Luther. I love what Matt Barrett goes on to say. His work in this area demonstrates that Luther not only affirmed sola scriptura, which is scripture alone, Latin for scripture alone, but practice it as well. At the time, the work of the Bible translation was far from innocent. Luther knew that he had a cannonball blowing a, a hole right through the infallibility, infallible authority of the Pope. Luther was committed, even in the face of persecution, to seeing the Word of God translated into the vernacular so that the people of God could read it for themselves and see the gospel truths that had so transformed his own life. Think about that for a second. What has had to have happened for us, even today, to sit here and have a Bible that we can understand? And what Luther's principle of solar scriptura was not, was not something new. He was returning to something very, very old. It was so old even, in fact, from Jesus himself. And I love what Barrett goes on to say. He says, the Bible became a jewel in the hands of the reformers, not because it was a handbook for happy living or a primer of metaphysics about God, but because in it the Christian possessed the swaddling clothing in which Christ lies. By devoting himself to Bible translation, Luther was sending a loud message to the German people that the Bible holds supremacy over all human traditions. And so I have one point for us, actually for the next five weeks, that I want to really unpack for us. And it's simply this at the top of your page. You've probably heard us say this before, but I want to unpack it phrase by phrase. According to Scripture alone, we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. Now that phrase might look really simple to you, but that phrase has so much history in it 
That phrase has so much scripture in it. That phrase is so birthed from the scriptures that I just want us to spend five weeks on it. That we are saved according to scripture alone. And I want us to see the church's one foundation. Here it is, the church's one foundation. I want us to look even, now again, you could probably sit here and you're probably wondering, Daniel, you're talking about that, we'll see here that tradition is bad. Why are we talking about tradition then? Why are we talking about the Reformation? Well, because it matters. It matters a lot for why we're here and why we're doing what we're doing, but it also matters for why we do what we do as a church. So I want us to consider the church's one foundation. So turn there, if you're not there already, 2 Timothy 3. And I want you to notice what Paul says to Timothy. Now, in these days, he would have been writing, this is one of his likely, his last letters from prison. One of the last pleas for Timothy. Here's, here's one of the last things he wants to tell him. And now notice what he says, just two chapters before it's, the letter finishes. Chapter 1. Verse 1, verse 1 of chapter 3, he says, But understand this, that in the last days, which are the days after Christ's resurrection and ascension, all the way till now, so we're in the last days. Understand this, that in the last days, there will come times of difficulty. Okay, hear, hear that even. There will come times of difficulty. So if you're thinking right now, man, we're in, we're in some difficult times. Yep. We've been for 2,000 years. We've been in some times of difficulty. Here's why. Notice verses 2 through 4. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Do not think that our day is the worst day that we've, we've ever been in. Do not think that. This, is, this was written 2,000 years ago, and it's continually, progressively maybe gotten worse, but we're in some bad days. What's his answer to it? Well, we'll see. We'll see in just a second. He says, don't associate with these kind of people. That's what he, he'll go on to say there in verse 7. Notice what he says. Always learning. This is what they're like. Always learning and never able to arrive at the knowledge of the truth. Here's the kind of people they are. Verse, verse 8. Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses. Now, those two men are likely the Pharaoh's magician. If you remember, if you remember in the book of Exodus, when Moses was liberating the people, they were the two people who came from Pharaoh and opposed Moses. And the way they opposed him is Moses told Aaron to throw his staff down, and it became a snake. And what did the two, two magicians go and do? Well, they go throw their snakes down, or their staffs down, and they become snakes. And, and what they did, notice what he says again in verse, verse 8. Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also opposed the truth. Men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. And just like Janus and Jambres, they thought the power resided in them. And he's saying, again, Paul's saying here, don't be like those ungodly people. Don't be like the people who try to imitate the power. And notice even what happened in Egypt. Moses' staff consumed the other two snakes. And so we have to ask the question, where does power reside? That's a very important question for us, and we don't ask very often. Where does power reside? And a lot of us would say, well, like God. God in God, that's where the power resides. Yes, that's good. Go a step further. 
does that mean for us? Where does the power reside? Where does power reside? And in men like Janus and Jambres, and you'll see this, guys, go around, look at other churches, you'll see this. They will try to do shows, they'll try to do magic acts, they'll try to do this, they'll try to do that. There's all these different things, and we're all answering the question, where does the power reside? And we answer it every week we come here. We answer it every day we open up Scripture. We answer the question, where do we believe power resides? It's in the Word of God. It's in the Word of God. Now, I want to show you three obstacles to that, and then what the Reformers restored in that way. So the first one, the first obstacle to that, and it's a very common one, is reason above... I'm sorry. I have that actually backward. Take the third point and put it first. Reason above Scripture. Now, I would argue that this is one of the great heresies of our day, that modern man, enlightened man, answers this question by saying, I will be the judge over Holy Scripture. I will be the one. Here's what it looks like, just very simply, if you're a visual learner. Reason above Scripture. What they do is they come to Scripture and say, I'll wait until I feel like this is right till I believe it. And ultimately what that does, hear it again, I will wait until I feel like this is right until I believe it. What have they done in that moment? They've placed their own feelings above Scripture. I wonder what's here. I, I, I want to see what's here so that then I can believe. No, no, no. We approach Scripture by saying, I wonder what's here and I'm eager to believe it. You know why? Because this is God's Word. It's faith-seeking understanding, not the other way around. We could spend a lot of time on this one, and I'm going to save us a, a very long diving off into this. But reason above Scripture, that's the first error. Here's the second error, and it's the error actually that the, that the Reformers were addressing, and is that Scripture is equal with tradition, that Scripture is on the same level as tradition. The Reformation is foundational, because it rejected this chief error. What you had during the time of the Reformation was a Latin Bible that only priests and popes could read. And the pope had ultimate authority. So basically, when the pope said jump, the people said how high? Okay? So pope, he would come and he would say, this is what we're to do. Do you see it in scripture? Nope. But he's the pope, so we listen to him. The teaching of the Pope was equal with Scripture. And so they answered the question, where does the power reside? Just like Janus and Jambres, where would they say the power resided? Well, yeah, it's in, in Scripture, but it's also in the church. It's also in what the Pope says. I love what the, um, the Chicago Statement says on this. They say, we affirm that the Holy Scriptures are to be received as the authoritative Word of God. We deny that the Scriptures receive their authority from the church, tradition, or any other human source. One of the great Catholic errors is that they see the church as bringing the authority to Scripture. They come to Scripture and they say, we're all sitting here affirming this, therefore it has authority. No, 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 no. Even if all of us weren't here, the Word still has authority. Even if no one else affirmed it, even if no one else was saying, yep, this is God's word, it still has authority. Okay, so that one's the other one. That's the one that really is Reformation-like. Let me give you another one, a third one. It's their point B there. It's the bare-naked scripture. And it's the Latin, is it is nuda, nuda scriptura. 
Okay, and this is a different one. This is one I would actually argue that we are probably most tempted toward. And this tradition says, or this, this understanding of Scripture says, that tradition, we only want the Bible alone in that sense. Or, or to say it like this, tradition would be viewed very negatively. We don't have tradition. What we need is all of us to go into our rooms and take our Bibles and become little evangelical monks. We all just take our Bibles and it doesn't really matter what, what pastor says. doesn't really matter what, what the history says. No, 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 no. I just take my Bible and it says to me what I want it to say. Have you ever heard Tom, guys like Thomas Jefferson would go? And he actually, if you've ever seen the Jefferson Bible, it actually has parts like cut out of it. That's nuda scriptura. That's bare scripture. I, yeah, I believe the Bible alone. Let me just cut some pieces out though. That's what he's doing. So where does the power reside? Ultimately, it resides in the interpreter. I would argue that scripture alone, when we say scripture alone, sola scriptura, sola is just the Latin for alone. Scripture alone. So that's what I want us to look at. Scripture alone. If you think about it like this, the early church formed the church. The medieval church deformed the church, and the reformers reformed the church. The doctrine, this doctrine sees the Bible as the final authority, but it doesn't remove tradition. What it says is all tradition, me and you, everything we come up with, is subject to the Word of God. It comes back to where is the final authority. And so I'd put it like this, that tradition is like guardrails. Tradition keeps us within the bounds at some level of orthodoxy. And you may be like, well, Daniel, that's, really, that's a really good idea. Where do you see that from the text? Notice what he goes down and says in verse 10. And we'll look at that in just a second. But this answer, where does the power rely? Notice where the power relies. The power relies on the Word of God, so much so that it actually begins to shape tradition. So if there's people that, that, that have come before us that have said things that are wrong, you know what we say to them? Scripture alone corrects you. Scripture alone is what, is what shapes you, but tradition is the guardrails in that way. Ephesians 2.20 says this, we are built, the church is built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. Now notice even the way, now notice even the way that Paul says this to Timothy in regard to the last days. So he says, godlessness in the last days, that, that it's going to be so wicked. But notice what he says in verse 10. You, however, now notice what he says. He doesn't say, just go sit in your, your, your closet alone by yourself with a Bible. He doesn't say that. Notice what he says. You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness. Now notice here, he's contrasting. He's saying, Timothy, you're not to be like the false teachers. Don't be like them. You, on the other hand, live differently than the false teachers. Follow my example, Paul says. Now, that's not to say you're following my example now, but what you are doing is we're following the apostles' example laid down in Scripture as well as shaped in tradition. Notice what he goes on to say. He says, you, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me. Now, notice what he then goes on to say, even in verse 14. But as for you, 
Continue in what you have learned and having firmly believed, knowing from whom you've learned it. Timothy is to be different than the rest of these false teachers. To be normal is to be a failure. And I think the same is true for us. To, to follow the whims of what other churches are doing or even what the culture is doing is a failure. If we are not living our lives as a church, as parents, as, as teachers, as, as engineers, as all the things we do, if we're not living in step with the Word of God, finding our final power and authority from the Word, it's a failure. It's a failure. Notice again what he says. But as for you, verse 14, continue in what you've learned and having firmly believed, knowing from whom you've learned it. So you see even there that connection. He's firmly believed it himself, but he's learned it from somebody, hasn't he? Even in that, affirming the tradition from which he's learned it. And how from childhood you've been acquainted, verse 15, acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Now he's going to say something that's very profitable for us today. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. So I want us to consider, breathed out by God. And the question is, what is Scripture? It's breathed out by God. The word God breathed there, in, in the ESV at least, and s- several others have similar things, comes from one word, which is literally two, two, a compound word, which is theos pneuma, which is God breathed, God's breath. Essentially, it's saying that when the Bible speaks, God speaks. Let me put it to you like this. Apart from Holy Scripture, what we have, I want you to think about an example of a dark room. I have a picture up here of a dark room. This is what we would be like apart from Scripture. Now, I know it's hard for us because we have Scripture here. We, we, are, we are steeped in Scripture, even in our own society. But picture with me for a second, without Scripture, this is where much of the world currently even resides. You know why? Because they don't even have a Bible in their own language. Dark. And I'm not talking like kind of dark. I'm talking like pitch dark, like you can't see your hand in front of your face. Pitch dark. This is what life without Scripture is like. So God breathed implies or it necessitates, it reveals the necessity of Scripture. So God breathed, when we say the Bible is God breathed, what it means is everything apart from that is darkness. So so societies that live without Bibles in their own language, living, dwelling, they may do many, 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 many good things. They may even know that God exists, of course, but it's not, God's Word is not present with them. God, God breathed reveals the necessity of Scripture, and I want you to see this image. So picture that light, or that that house again, that was once dark. You can go on to the next slide there, Ed. Yeah, one more. Oh, maybe it's not there with you. Sorry. There it is, yes. What happens when Scripture is turned on is it's like a light bulb in a very, very, very dark room filled with people who hate the light. 
Because I don't know if you've ever been in a really dark room when someone turns on a light. What's the first thing you think? Ah, turn the light off. That's what happens when Scripture is turned on. Notice what he says again in verse 15. And how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. The logical implication there is that Scripture and Scripture alone is what makes him wise for salvation. Without this world word, there could not be the light that Paul's talking about there. When Paul talks about Scripture, he doesn't say that everyone around us will just understand it. Quite the contrary, actually. Romans 1 tells us that actually, apart from God's Word, we only have general revelation. Meaning that we might even know God exists. We may know very many good things. But we do not know God. We do not hear from Him. And I want to just acknowledge in this moment how offensive that doctrine is. I don't know if you've ever considered for a second just how offensive the doctrine of the necessity of Scripture is. What we're saying in humility is not, look how great we are. We're saying, look how great God's Word is. We're not coming and saying, oh, well, we've got it figured out. We're saying we don't have it figured out. And we're saying to everyone else who doesn't know God's Word, come find life. Come find breath. Come find God's breathed Word. I love what Matthew Barrett again says. He says, what an important reminder this is to avoid the all-too-common temptation to think that divine revelation is God's response to us. We do not find God. God finds us and makes himself known to us. Think about that for a second. That means that without Holy Scripture coming to a person, that they can't and won't find God. And if you don't sense the, the offensiveness of that, I'm not sure if you understand it. I'm not sure if you get it. God, he goes on, he says, God is the speaker, we are the listeners. It's not enough to say the biblical authors wrote about God or even wrote for God. We must say much more. God himself speaks, and he speaks for himself. His best word has come to us in his own son, the word. In Jesus, God has a message for the world, a word that is meant for all people in all places and at all times. As the recipients, we are summoned to listen and embrace the good news of the word with faith and repentance. I hope you can see the, just the offensiveness of that. And, and, and what it does is it at first will be very offensive. And it will feel like, like hugging a porcupine at first. And then all of a sudden what it does when the spirit alivens you to it is it creates deep humility is it creates a humility that says, apart from this word, I am lost. Do we really believe that, brothers and sisters? So God's breathed word reveals the necessity of it. Here's the second piece. God's breathed word reveals the sufficiency of Scripture. God's breathed word reveals the sufficiency of Scripture. And he says again, all Scripture is breathed out by God. Now, I want to give you an example of what this is like. I think we, I think we know, oh yeah, of course, the Bible is sufficient. 
And we're very quick to affirm this. So picture you're in this light and you're in this house, and one of the light switches in the house uh, is this light switch called sufficiency. So if I asked you, is, is the Word of God sufficient? If you're a Christian and you know your Bible at all, you'll be like, yes, of course, it's on. Of course, the Bible is sufficient. The sufficiency of Scripture, then Barrett goes on to say, the sufficiency of Scripture means that all things necessary for salvation, for living the Christian life in obedience to God, and for His glory are given to us in the Scriptures. And again, we we say that, we're like, yep, we agree with that, light on. Yep, sufficiency. And we see 2 Peter 1.3 says the same thing. His divine power has granted us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence. But then we get to the second one, this third one. And I would argue this, this next one is the one that really grinds our post, post-truth, post-Christian gears, okay? So sufficiency, we can stand back all day long. And yeah, of course, light switch, on. God breathed, reveals... The authority of Scripture. God breathed reveals the authority of Scripture. Again, notice what he says. Second, Second Timothy 3.16. All Scripture is breathed out by God. So when we read Scripture, we're not reading someone's interpretation. We're not reading someone's thoughts on a matter. We're reading when God speaks, the Bible speaks. When the Bible speaks, God speaks. But when we talk about authority, authority is not like sufficiency. If I asked you, is the Bible authoritative? Yes, of course. How authoritative? How authoritative is it? Well, then, then we have differing degrees, don't we? So picture, we have here's, here's over here on one side, is the Bible sufficient? Yeah, amen. We're standing in the back, high-fiving each other. Of course, the Bible's sufficient. Yeah, yeah, yeah. How authoritative is it? And I would argue, and I, this is from talking to non-Christians on campuses. This is not one conversation. This is hundreds of conversations. You have to start asking, how authoritative is it? I would argue that people walk around with the equivalent of the authority on zero. And if you've ever had a light switch that has like an on, on and a dial with it, you know what happens when you do that? When the sufficiency's on, but the authority's all the way turned down? Is the light on? You know why? You want to know why? I would argue we live in a society that will even, that will even quote, that you'll have abortion signs that quote Scripture. And you can ask, why on earth would they do that? Here's how they can do it, with good conscience. The authority so far turned down, doesn't matter. Who cares? What authority does it have in my life? We can't just ask, is the Bible authoritative? We have to ask, how much so? Does it demand, does it demand my life? Does it demand your life? Does it demand all of our lives? Listen to Jesus' words. You don't, you, and again, this is one message. We could, we could go from 100 texts. Listen to Jesus' own words. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say, Lord, Lord, didn't it, did we not prophesy in your name? and cast out demons in your name, and do many, many works in your name. And may I insert there that they never thought to ask, does Jesus want us to do this? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Then he says immediately after that, here are the words he says immediately after that, everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them 
will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. Do you hear it? Even in Jesus' words, I cannot tell you the amount of conversations I've had with people that they say, Jesus would never fill in the blank. And they're about to tell you their doctrine right there. Jesus would never, Jesus would never not affirm homosexual relationships. Based on what? Well, I've never read the Bible. I'm not really sure. There it is again. We use the authority when it's convenient, and when it's not, we dim it down, and then we wander around in the darkness not knowing, not feeling. Listen to what Jesus then goes on to say. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house in the rock. And so it's not enough just to say, what's the Bible say about parenting? We have to say, what does the Bible say about parenting? And let me live in light of it. It doesn't just say, let me, let me see what the Bible says about my workplace. And then just, ah, whatever. I know I should work diligently, but eh, who cares? Do you see? The Bible has authority over all of it. All of it. And he goes on, Jesus goes on and says, and the rain fell and the floods came and the wind blew and beat on that house. Notice that house, the faithful house. It doesn't, get, it doesn't not get beat on. Of course it gets beat on. The rain fell, the floods came, the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall. Why? Because it was founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine, here it is again, and does not do them, will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. So when we think about our relationships with other people, here, let me give you another one. This is a conversation I feel like I have pretty much on the weekly, with college students especially. I love college students. But we have this conversation a lot. And we'll start talking about forgiveness, or we'll start talking about Jesus, and we'll start talking about all these things, and you find out real quick, yeah, yeah we love Jesus. We're, we're all good with Jesus. I hate my neighbor. I hate people. I like cats more than I like people. Literally, I've had that conversation. I like cats more than I like people. Do they love God? We all know very quickly. We're all able to see very quickly. No, you obviously don't love God. Why? Because you hate the people made in his image. Do you see right there? Authority. (sniffs) Turn down. What light? What are you talking about? Yeah, the Bible's sufficient, of course. But it's not authoritative in my life. I don't really care. So what is the Bible? It's breathed out by God. It's necessary. It's sufficient. It's authoritative. We could spend the rest of the month looking at those three things. But, and we're running way over. I want us to see at least the third point, and then I'll breeze through the fourth point. So profitable for t- transformation. So what is the Bible? It's God-breathed. What does it do? The, pro- the Bible is profitable for transformation. And these four elements are very, very important for us. All Scripture is breathed out by God, and it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. And this first one is pretty easy. The Bible, Scripture teaches. So this is the positive element of what the Bible does. The Bible shows us and instructs us to the truth. It gives us doctrine, sound doctrine. And you know how you know this? Go ask somebody on the street, who is Jesus? And what they'll answer to you will be doctrine. Everyone has doctrine. It's just how good is their doctrine? It's not if they'll have doctrine. It's not if they'll have truth. It's how good is their truth. Well, Jesus is loving, okay? What kind of loving are we talking about? 
So Scripture positively teaches. We, we know that one. That's a pretty easy one. Here's the second one. Scripture rebukes. Notice again what he says. All Scripture is breathed out by God, profitable for teaching. That's positive. But here's the negative aspect. For reproof. And now notice the way Paul, Paul even lays these out. He doesn't say, oh, these are different categories. He lays them out one next to the other. Here's the positive. Here's the negative. Scripture rebukes. I will, I'm going to make a statement, and I believe this more and more, and I see it to be even more true. If in your time reading Scripture, you are never corrected by the Word of God, but only affirmed, may I just say, I don't think you're a Christian. I cannot tell you. It saddens me. It makes me weep the amount of people I meet on a weekly basis that tell me they love Jesus, they love the Bible, and you start talking to them, and they've never been corrected from the Word. Negatively speaking, they've never, they've only ever been affirmed. And doing that, I just saw a commercial the other day, it was just exactly like it. There was a guy looking in a mirror, and in the mirror, the reflection of him was talking to himself. And I'm afraid that's what we think Scripture's meant to do. Scripture's meant to just be like, yeah, what, what do you think about this, Daniel? Well, Daniel, I'll tell you, this is what I think about it. I think this is a good idea. That's how we approach Scripture. And if Scripture never rebukes us, may I just say, I don't think we know Jesus. I don't think we know the, the, the biblical risen Christ. Because I can guarantee you, if Scripture never rebukes us, Jesus looks just like Santa Claus. He's only ever affirming. He loves the little children but he never, he's, a, he's a God who never speaks on hell. I, I've had this conversation so many times, it breaks my heart. People will say, the Bible doesn't even talk about hell. And I'll say, Jesus spoke on hell more than anybody. Jesus spoke on hell more than anybody in all the Scripture. Don't say the Bible doesn't speak on hell. Of course it does. Scripture rebukes, that's the second thing it does. Here's the third thing. Scripture corrects. And now this correcting is the same kind of correcting that would be like improving, building upon. And if we have Jesus made in our own image, well, then we have no need to be corrected, do we? So I, I'd encourage you, just, just examine your life. Do, in your time reading the Scriptures, is there time that you're thinking, this would be good for Uncle Bill, this would be good for Aunt Sally, but never first thinking is this good for me? Is this authoritative for me? Here's the fourth thing, finally. Scripture trains us. All Scripture is breathed out by God. It's profitable for teaching positively, for rebuke negatively, for correction it, it, positively again, but, but in a more building fashion. And finally, for training in righteousness. And that word for training is the exact same word that's used for disciplining or bringing up a child. When God makes a Christian, what he does is he takes the old nature out, puts in his new nature, and now you have a spiritual infant. And what his word does is it's like a, it's like a parent that teaches a child. The kind of training is the same kind of child rearing, even if you would, in righteousness. We are not automatically pre-programmed to live righteously. Actually, to put it the other way around, we're pre-programmed to sin. We're not pre-programmed to righteousness. We're pre-programmed to sin. And by God's grace, He gives us His righteousness so that we may walk in obedience. I love what Jay Adams, Jay Adams always coming through in the clutch. Listen to what he says. 
change or transformation involves four factors. Teaching, a clear understanding of what God requires. Conviction, an acknowledgement that one has not met these requirements. Correction, confession, forgiveness, and righting of wrongs. Training, so that the new righteous ways are rehabituated into the life for the future. The scriptures provide all that is needed to bring such change. And I want you to just close here with this. Finally, we are formed. So what's, what's it creating? What's scripture creating in us? Simply that we are formed for the new creation. We are formed for the new creation. And we do not spend time pondering on this. But when God saved us, he didn't just raise us up in a Christian home and, and just one day we just came to be a Christian. No. When God saves the Christian, he takes the old nature out, he puts the new nature in, and Scripture is there to create us to be a complete person. We're created to be a complete or a whole person. Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God now, that's, that's specifically for pastors, teachers, but it's also for all people. Because we're going to see what he goes on to say in verse 2 of chapter 4, which is preach the word. That the man of God may be complete. I don't know if we ponder on this very, very often, but what do you think a complete person looks like? Have you ever thought about that? What does a complete person look like? You know, we, we, I think our natural disposition in, in the world is to say, well, this person, well, they've, they've got their high school diploma, and now they've got their bachelor's, and then they go on to get their master's. Now they're a young professional. This is what I used to think. That's a complete person. That's not a complete person. The complete person may not be educated at all. The complete person may not have, have any education at all. The complete person may be completely contrary to what we think it looks like if they are formed in the image of Christ. Jesus says, John 15, we could look at John 15 where Jesus says, abide in me and keep my word and then you will have life. But he says in John 15, 10, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love just as I've kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I've spoken to you, that my, my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. A complete person, we know what a complete person looks like. You know why? Because we've seen the image of God, and it looks like Jesus. So when you look, don't look at the mirror of me. When I walk into a mirror, you see me. When you walk to Scripture, you see Christ. And if what you look at doesn't look like you, that's good. The Christian life is so contrary It's not saying I'm looking for perfection. It's saying we're looking not at our mirror of ourself. We're looking at Christ. He's the complete person. And so if you look at Scripture and you're like, man, I'm so discouraged. I see how far I am from Christ. You know what I want to respond to you? Good. There's hope for you. Brother and sister, there's hope for you to see I'm not like this. God, help me look like this. And finally, here's the last piece. Scripture equips us to do the master's work. Notice again what he says. Scripture is breathed out by God. It's necessary. It's sufficient. It's authoritative and profitable for teaching, 
for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. I'm not sure if you've considered this either, but it it comes right along with the completed person. What are we here for? I feel like in the last week or two, I've been asked about the end days more than I've been asked about the end days in like pretty much my whole life. And here's what I want to continue to respond to it. Maybe. We are in the last days. Christ could come at any moment. And here's what I want to be busy doing. The master's work. Here's, you know, there's, there's a parable. Jesus gives a parable, several parables, in Matthew 25. Actually, let me give you this first. Ephesians 2.10, this is why he saved us. We're going to look at this some next week. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for this purpose, for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You don't want to know, you want to know, even if tomorrow was our last day on earth, I'm not sure if I'd live much different, actually. I'd go home, and I'd love my wife. I'd go home, and I'd teach my children. I'd go home, and I'd go to work. You know why? Maybe I'd go, I'd probably be a little more diligent in sharing my faith. But you know why? Inasmuch as we're keeping what Christ has said, we're being pleasing to the master. Have you ever thought about that? Listen to what Jesus says in Matthew 25. We could look at the parable of the virgins, but I want to consider this as we close. Matthew 25, 14, he says this. For it will be like a man, this is the kingdom of heaven, as he says. For it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. Let me interpret this for us. Jesus is saying, I'm going away and I'm going to entrust all that I have to you. And then he says, to one he gave five talents, to one he gave two, to one he gave one, to each according to his ability. Then he went away. So we see very quickly what he's saying here. He's saying, he has ascended, he's going away, but he's going to give us all that he has, all the property for us to manage. And then jump down to verse 25. Now, you know how this parable goes, I hope. The one, the one with five talents, he handled it well, and he received a reward. And, and what, what, does he say to, what does Christ say to him? Well done, my good and faithful servant. And then the one with two, he goes and he says, yeah, yeah, I, I, I returned a reward to you. Okay, good. Welcome into the, joy of, into the joy of your master. But then the last one. I was really struck by this just the other day. Matthew 25, 24 through 25. He also, who had received the one talent, came forward. Now listen to what he says. Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here you have what is yours. What does Jesus say to him? Depart from me, you worker of iniquity. So if we knew that tomorrow was our last day and Christ was coming, if you're not living today as though you're being faithful unto Christ, then something's radically wrong today. Something's not radically wrong tomorrow. Something's radically wrong today. He says in verse 29, for to everyone who has been given, who will be, for to everyone who has, has will be given more and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away and cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. I want us to just consider the, the, the surety of our faith, brothers and sisters. If we knew that Christ was coming next week, 
I hope we wouldn't do anything different. Maybe we would gather more regularly. Maybe we would feast from God's word more often. Maybe we'd be more diligent. But we had better be doing the things right now that when Christ comes, he's pleased. So sitting around quabbling about, what is, is it the end times? I'm not sure. What should we do different? <laughs> Read the word. Pray the word. Shepherd your families. Be faithful in your work. For the glory of God, why? Because we've been saved by grace alone, through faith alone, to the, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. And today I hope you can see the surety of the foundation of what we're talking about, that it's according to Scripture alone. I want us to just take a minute and ponder God's Word for a second. And I really just ask that question. If you knew Christ was coming tomorrow, what would you do differently right now? What would you do differently right now? And if you, if you have a laundry list of things, may I tell you, I don't know when he's coming. And I think anyone who says, oh yes, I know when he's coming, that person's a liar. And you should throw them out. We don't know when he's coming. Christ may come by the time we hit the parking lot. Clean up the laundry list then. That's not how Christians live. That's not what Christians do. That's according to Scripture alone. So I want us to just consider what we've heard. If this is the Word of God, then live in step with it. Live in light of it in that way. I just want us to take a minute and ponder what we've heard here this morning.